You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, David. Hello, Will. And hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 52 of the Common Descent Podcast. And welcome to 2019, our first episode of the year. Well, we haven't recorded an episode all year. It's been a while, you know? Gotta get back into it. Today, everyone, we have a fun episode for you. I'm really looking forward to this topic because we are discussing sounds of the past, or otherwise known as fossil bioacoustics. Ooh, the noises of the ancient times. Yes. So bioacoustics is a fancy term for the sounds living things make and are affected by, and we're going to be discussing them, but focusing on the ones that fossil animals made. But how do we know the noises that fossil things could make? <laughs> it's a good question, David. Usually we don't. <laughs> we don't. We've, no. And, end of the episode. All right. Thanks, everyone. It's been a thanks lot of fun. Thanks for listening. All right. This was great. <laughs> Off to a strong start this year. So there are a few instances where we do get a glimpse into what sounds fossil animals may have made or may not have been able to make. And we're going to look into those instances during the episode and discuss how we figure that out, what techniques were used to delve into the sounds of the past. This episode was suggested by a variety of sources. Our One of our suggestions was from my friend Sam, who texted us we should talk about dinosaur vocalizations, so check. Jonathan requested this over Gmail for specifically bioacoustics in the fossil record. Good wording. And then the survey asked for it. The first one. Yeah, the first one back in March. Yeah, so we don't know who that was. So thanks, survey. Here's your episode. (laughs) But first, as usual, some announcements. First and foremost, welcome to 2019, everyone. Hope you had a yeah. Hope you had a good New Year. I'm sure everyone's doing great with the resolutions already. Oh, yeah, I'm doing, oh, it's going fantastic. Woo! Yeah. For a weekend. I mean, I'll make mine eventually. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's on my list of resolutions, is to make some resolutions. <laughs> well, and to welcome in this new year, I would like to welcome some new patrons. Ooh. As many of you already know, if you join our Patreon at a certain level, we'll shout your name out. And I have four names to shout out. So welcome Jordan, Meg, Sam, and Penny Sorolophus. What an awesome set of names. One of those is actually an upgrade, I believe. Yes. I think I think Jordan upgraded to the shout-out level. So yeah. thanks to all of them for joining us. Long-term and new. Speaking of the podcast doing well, we recently broke 100,000 downloads. Total downloads. Yeah. All, all audios we've ever recorded. Uh, according to the Podbean stats, we have broke broken 100,000 total downloads. Which is super awesome. That's really cool. So thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening. Keep up the good work. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing with your friends. And thanks for for making comments on our social medias and reviews on iTunes. That all really helps us get the word out. No, your 2018 reviews, very good. Very good. Keep up the good work. 100,000 downloads is great (laughs) output, everyone. We'll meet you again next year for your next annual review. Absolutely. You know, take care then. Keep it. Take it easy. (laughs) (laughs) And then just a reminder for everyone, we also did our Q&A, our grab bag mail episode 
of question and answers at the very end of December. So it's been out for a little bit. So feel free to find that and give a listen to if you want to hear us answer all sorts of random awesome questions that we were asked. Yeah, like 50 or 60 questions. It was fantastic. It was super fun. It was wonderful. And now the news. So as many of you already know, each episode we like to start off by talking about some recent news, paleo and evolutionary science related to keep us up to date and keep you up to date. And I think, you know what, to mix things up for the new year, I'm gonna let you start, David. Oh, well, all right. Well, my bit of news for today, the first, the first news of 2019 is about bugs. Ooh. This is, so more from the world of Amber, which has just been so, such a crazy source of awesome stuff in the last couple of years. It's, it's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> but this is not Myanmar Amber, Burmese Amber, as most of our, probably all of our Amber stories up to this point have been. This is Lebanese Amber from 130 million years ago in the early Cretaceous. And it provides evidence of how ancient insects hatched out of their eggs. Cool. This is research by Ricardo Perez de la Fuente et al. in the journal Paleontology, and we'll link to an article on Earth.com by Chrissy Sexton. Inside the amber that these researchers examined were multiple green lacewing larvae. So green lacewings are, uh, you see these around, these are neuropterin insects, lacewing bugs, but these aren't just Larvae, these are newborn larvae. And we know they're newborn because the amber also has the pieces of the eggs they just hatched out of. Nice. And what the coolest thing about this is that attached to the eggs are the bugs equivalent of an egg tooth. Oh, that's cool. So a lot of animals, uh, vertebrate animals, when they hatch out of eggs, they have the egg tooth, which is a little toothy projection that they have in the egg, and they use it to crack themselves out, and then they lose it. Well, apparently, a lot of insects have this too. And in the case of lacewings, they're called egg bursters. This whole category of, of tools that embryos use to break out of an egg is called an egg burster. That, there's going to be a video game named that not too long. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would be fun. In the lacewings, what they have, and we see this in modern lacewings, is these sort of masks, what the article describes as, quote, masks, with this jagged blade, this serrated, edged projection that sticks off of it. And in modern lacewings, what they do is they use it to open a slit in the egg, and then from there they burst out. In this, these amber-entombed fossils, they found... A number of these still stuck in the eggshell, having recently come off the faces of the larvae, which is the same thing that the modern ones do. They use it to break the egg open, and then they leave it stuck in the egg as they crawl out. That's really cool. It's super neat. And what's fun is that these egg bursters are not only the first time these have ever been found in the fossil record, they are very similar to what we see in modern-day lacewings, which suggests that this is something that evolved early and basically stuck around in pretty much the same form, going back at least as far as the early Cretaceous. That's really awesome. 
these kind of findings sometimes like the fact that it's so well preserved is obviously awesome, but they can sometimes feel kind of anticlimactic where you're like, oh, they're doing the same thing. They're not doing something super weird. But the fact that they've been doing some, the same hatching mechanism for over a hundred million years says something like that's a big deal. That's that's something that is very important to this group, yeah, which it works. It works really well. And that's awesome. They also were able to name these larvae as a new species, new genus and species. Ooh. And I like the name they chose. So the genus species is Tragicrysa ovoruptora. And Chrysa is a common ending for lacewing genera. It's, it's a common part of the word, a common root. And Tragicrysa is literally because it is tragic that multiple of them were trapped and killed in amber. <laughs> <laughs> and then the species epithet is ovoruptura, which literally is egg-breaking. That's awesome. And another cool thing that I thought was really neat in the paper is they noted that the larvae had uh, structures on their back called dorsal tubercles, which are adaptations for collecting and carrying debris, like litter and bits <gasps> of leaves and stuff on their backs. For protection and camouflage. Oh, cool. So once, if they had gotten out of the eggs and out into the environment, they would have been collecting all this stuff on their backs so that they would look uh, like they were a part of the litter or whatever. Like those little twig cocoons. That's awesome. <laughs> well, not not quite probably as advanced as yeah. the, um, what are they, what are they, bagworms? I think it's the bagworms. That worms. do that? Yeah. This is, I like this. It's more just like having little hooks on you mm -hmm. so that as you're walking around, you'll pick up the environment and be well, less, um, less easy to spot. It's the, uh, the decorator crabs that stick stuff to the hooks on their body. Uh, yeah. 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 It's, it's, yep. it's same, probably not as meticulous where they are actively decorating themselves, but still you're picking up junk so that you just look like junk. <laughs> yeah. It's That's pretty cool. These are cool bugs. Neat. That is awesome. Well, my first bit of news uh, has to do with a group that would probably happily be eating these because it has to do with birds Ooh. and how the brain shape changed as non-avian dinosaurs turned into avian dinosaurs and gained flight. Interesting. Some some neuro paleoneurology. Absolutely. So this is about a recent study that found that the brain shape in these dinosaurs showed significant change as they gained flight, but not as birds lost flight. Oh, interesting. Which is very interesting. Now, this is research by Maria Ohania Leone Gold and Akinobu Watanabe, and it's published in BMC Evolutionary Biology. The article will be linking to is by the American Museum of Natural History, the AMNH, on their website. And this research was looking at the fact that there's a common trend among organisms that when a group undergoes a major behavioral change, there's typically a proportional change in the size of regions of the brain. Mm -hmm. You need a new brain to do the new jobs that you're doing. Well, when non-avian theropods, the two-legged predators of the dinosaur world, that were closely related to birds, went into being birds and gaining flight, that's a pretty crazy behavioral change along with a physical one 
So they wanted to look at how did the acquisition of flight, how did gaining flight affect the shape and proportion of their brain. But they also were curious about how flight affects the brain in general. So they wanted to look at does it have reverse effects if they lose flight? Interesting. That seems like a good way to constrain what you're seeing. Absolutely. Like which of these changes are actually related to flight? Mm-hmm. Do, are they reversed? That's yes. cool. It was. Re- it's a really neat idea. So they use CT scanning to look at the brain cavity, where the brain would be in the skull, to get endocasts. And that gives you the rough shape of the brain of the animal. And they looked at various theropods, non-avian theropods, and volant or flying birds as well as flightless birds to compare the brain shapes and find hopefully a trend the scans included 80 individuals of both non-avian avian theropods including 25 flying and 19 flightless species of bird of crown group birds cool the first big change that they noticed was that between the non-bird dinosaurs and the bird dinosaurs there was a significant change in brain shape. It definitely shows a significant difference between the proportions. The One of the biggest ones is that the cerebrum, that there was an expansion in the cerebrum of the brain, which is suggested that the initial acquisition of flight might have had an effect on the, the that area of the brain to allow them to fly, potentially. Right, that that's controlling... Your behavior, your mm-hmm. senses, you know, whichever aspects have to adjust so that you can move through the air. The part of it that's equally interesting or odd, depending on how you look at it, is that the flightless birds did not show much difference between the flighted birds. Their brains looked very similar within family groups. So the most important thing for them was who they related to, not whether or not they could fly. So there was definitely some shift when they gained flight, but there doesn't seem to be any shift in losing flight which could mean that this new brain is now doing different jobs, even though they're no longer flying, or that that initial shift was not due to flight, but due to something else from non-flying theropod to flying bird. That's a really interesting... It's interesting for a few reasons. One, what you just said, it could be that what we're seeing is that they didn't make those changes for flight, Mm -hmm. or they did, but that that changed brain shape has now been co-opted for something important, something that you need to be a bird. Yes. And so you can't lose that even though you're not using it for flight anymore. It also means that flightless birds, ostriches, emus, and so on, are not necessarily a good comparison brain-wise for near-bird dinosaurs. Yeah, which is a a really important note to make when doing comparative research. You can't just look at an ostrich brain and be like, all right, that's what Deinonychus's <laughs> brain was like. Yes. Because apparently it was not. That's fascinating. Now, if if there was a flight effect to the brain shape change initially, then according to that, and looking at the endocast of Archaeopteryx's brain, traditionally the earliest you know bird, that, that famous transitional bird, it would have been terrestrial. So it's the brain shape looks more like pre-flight than post-flight. Yes. So interesting. That that may be a notch toward whether or not archaeopteryx could fly. Now there still needs to be research on this because this is a very complicated study. So there's lots that they can still delve into. 
Very cool. Yeah. Let's start off the year with some brains. <laughs> Good stuff. Well, let's move on to another uh, area of the fossil record that we don't talk a whole lot about on this podcast. Plants. This is a study that claims to have found the earliest known flowering plants in the fossil record. Oh, that's important. It sure is. So this is research by Tiang Fu et al. in the journal eLife, and we'll link to an article at Live Science by Laura Gegel. Angiosperms are flowering plants. Think of a plant that's probably an angiosperm. <laughs> Most of the familiar plants we have, grasses and most of your trees and your shrubs and like most of those are flowering plants of one kind or another. Flowering plants have taken over the world. They are the dominant group of plants in the world today and they have been since the Cretaceous period, but their origins are a bit of a mystery. Yeah. We don't have a good handle on exactly when and how they got started partially because we don't have a lot of good fossils from the earliest time of flowering plants. The oldest generally accepted fossils of angiosperms come from the early Cretaceous around 130 million years ago. And there have been studies that suggest that that should be about where angiosperms first evolved. But this study looked at fossils from Nanjing in China that are over 170 million years old from the early Jurassic period and concluded that what they are are flowers, which would make them not only the earliest flowering plants in the fossil record, but the earliest flowering plants by a lot. Cool. By like 50 million years. Wow. They named the new genus and species Nanjinganthus dendrostyla. It is known from... 264 specimens representing just under 200 different flowers from 34 slabs of rock that they were able to examine under high-powered microscopy to look for traits, for, for features that are characteristic of flowering plants, particularly enclosed ovules. So flowering plants have, you know, flowering plants produce a seed that gets pollinated and then, you know, they reproduce. They do what the, the birds and the bees do. All flowering plants start with the precursor to the seed before it's fertilized, an ovule enclosed by plant structures. And looking at these flowers, these authors found features that they believe to be true enclosed ovules. And they're surrounded by petals and sepals like you tend to see on flowers today. Ooh, cool. So that suggests that what they have is the earliest angiosperm. Now, not everyone agrees with this. There have been some objections raised. Oh, uh, no. One, one article I saw had another scientist who outright said <laughs> that this results are rubbish. <gasps> That's and harsh. And that what they are seeing is not flowering plants but probably something different, probably an ancient conifer. So, you know, debate and excitement. <laughs> uh, there was uh, some of the authors on this study were also part of a, a study a few years ago that claimed to find a late Jurassic flower, which is also controversial. Also not totally accepted, uh, partially because there's some issues dating it, some issues knowing the age of it. Mm -hmm. But if this is, in fact, an angiosperm, 
it raises the question of what it was doing back then and exactly when angiosperms got their start and how it relates to the origins and dispersal of angiosperms in the first place. Were they hanging around for a little bit and then they exploded in diversity? Was this sort of an early branch off mm -hmm. of them or is this a direct ancestor? Lots of questions uh, and, and, and in an intriguing, the middle of an intriguing mystery in the fossil history of our world. That's very cool for, for two reasons. One, what other field of study do you get to have the phrase controversial flowers <laughs> other than paleontology? There's, I don't paleontology. think there's many. <laughs> Georgia O'Keeffe paintings. Right? Yes. No, that is correct. Also, this is really cool because this is one of those things that when flowers showed up, as we've briefly discussed in the past, it changed the, fa the face of the planet. So, like, it's kind of important to know when that change was happening because it would have an, a, a side effect, a series of side effects on just about everything above water and probably even in water. Yeah, kind of a big deal. Just a bit. Cool. Okay, well, once again, I'm going to follow up with another thing that would have eaten your thing. Uh, <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> Always got to show me up. Because <laughs> I'm going to talk about ankylosaurs. Ankylosaurs. Oh, ankylosaurs, depending on how you like to say it. I like ankylosaurs. Ankylosaurs is correct because it's the way I say it. <laughs> so your ankylosaurs, I will submit because it is the new year, <laughs> are your armored, big, tough tank of a dinosaur. Those herbivores that walked around the late Cretaceous. And this is a study that looked at the nasal passages, the spaces inside the nose and the, pass the, the airways in there, to discover that it seems these were used as an air conditioning system for the dinosaurs. Cool. Yeah. This is research by Bork et al. in Plus One. And the article we'll be linking to is by Brian Sweetek, a name you've probably recognized, <laughs> and is going to be in smithsonian.com. Now, these armored dinosaurs are famous, famous, famous for all of their awesome spikes and crazy adaptations, armored eyelids, uh, armored eyelids and clubbed tails and stuff like that. Another thing that they're well known for, for the people who study them, but is not well talked about because I honestly did not know this was a feature of them, is that they very regularly have expanded and complex nasal passageways. Yeah. So basically what this means is the inside of their nose is really big and it's lots of little tubes winding and spiraling un until it gets to the inside of the throat and eventually the lungs. So it's a much longer passage from the outside of the nose to the inside of your lungs than it would seem from there, from looking at them on the outside. And it's not really been sure why. Why do they have these complex nasals? Some suggestions, and pay attention to these because they'll come up later on in the episode, <laughs> are that they may have housed glands of some sort, that they may have been for you know, assisting in respiration or enhancing smell or as a resonating chamber for making noise. Huh? Mm -hmm. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Uh, fitting, topical. Or that it may have been cooling the air as it was inhaled and helping the animal release heat as they exhaled and cooling as they inhale to keep them air conditioned. So to test this, once again, they CT scanned it. 
which will become a theme this episode as well, because CT scanning stuff is awesome. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so they use CT scans on the passageways of two different species, Panoplosaurus, Panoplosaurus, Mirus, and Euoplocephalus tutus. These two were studied, and their nasal passages were scanned, but they also looked at the breathing systems of other animals like birds and crocodilians, the two modern archosaurs, as well as lizards, to help fill in those soft tissue blanks that were not fossilized. They also, this was really cool to me, they applied the habitats of living animals, looking at the temperature and humidity of inhaled air, to then apply it to what these dinosaurs would have been breathing. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so they're trying to get as close to a one-to-one comparison of how animals breathe in different airs and how their nares are sculpting it. I don't know how you would how you would describe when you modify air, humidifying it, dehumidifying it. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, they found that these passageways would absolutely work well to exchange heat. So they absolutely could be good for cooling down the dinosaur. An extra interesting thing they found out is that they were not the same amount of good at it, uh, which they weren't expecting because both lived in the same area at the same time. But Euoplocephalus was much better at cooling itself down than Panoplosaurus. Huh. They had a couple of solutions to why this might be. First off, Euoplocephalus is bigger. And bigger bodies warm up and cool down slower than smaller ones. Yeah. So you you need more air conditioning. You need a better radiator. Or it could be that it was a lifestyle thing. Maybe it was living out in the open instead of forested areas, so it was getting more direct sunlight. You know, big animal out on the, the, you know, plains of that time you know the open landscape uh and heating up more quickly or and this is something i would never have thought of maybe it was eating less nutritious vegetation and it was having to ferment in its belly which would have added extra heat to its own body which is a cool idea wow what a thought yeah that one's an awesome concept that i never would have come across the other thing that they note here, and this is why this is going to become topical because we're going to talk about these in not too long, is that these kind of crazy noses are not unusual among big herbivorous dinosaurs. We see the hadrosaurus, specifically the you know famous Parasaurolophus and its cousins, have large nasal crests. Some of the big sauropods, those long-necked dinosaurs like Giraffa Titan, has nares that are notable for their complexity so this may have been an important factor for dinosaurs to get into those multi-ton sizes interesting there may be that makes a lot of sense yeah it being a big herbivore that very well may have been warm-blooded you may have been had to have that to keep your brain cooled down as you're out grazing and eating so this also does not rule out that there may have been other functions for these noses so it could have still been doing other jobs uh, like resonating sounds. Just the thought of using, I, I like that whenever I hear about nasal chambers, it's always in the context of, of making noise. Yes. But that you're using that as a, an air conditioner specifically for the head, which seems like a really important place to maintain a, a proper body temperature. Well, and, and today we're so used to seeing that in running animals like horses and cheetahs having big noses because they're running. But thinking of that 
you know, you need it because you're out in the open grazing or that you're eating stuff that's heating you up out. <laughs> or just because you're huge. Or just because you're massive. <laughs> it's really interesting. And these complex nares have been a, a bit of a mystery in dinosaurs for quite a while because, as we already mentioned, other dinosaurs had them and we're pretty sure they were mainly using them for sound. Right. Which leads us very nicely to the end of the news and the beginning of our topic after this break. So before we talk about how we learn about fossil sounds, let's talk about why we want to learn about fossil sounds. Yeah, who cares? Yeah, who's, it's just a, literally just a bunch of noise. Eh. Just a bunch of noise. <laughs> Drown it out. No, the reason bioacoustics is so important is it can tell you amazing amounts about an animal's behavior. It, this, this gives you insights into were they social, what kind of environment even were they living in? Because some sounds travel better in a forest versus the an open environment like the plains. It also might tell you how they were finding food because some animals use it for that as well. So it can give you insights that the bone alone might not be able to. Sound is important. Take it from us, the guys on the podcast. Without bioacoustics, this wouldn't be happening, folks. That's what we're doing right now. We're bioacousticing right at you. <laughs> now... Why is it a worthy topic for a paleontology podcast? Because it is an enigma when it comes to studying fossil organisms in that typically you get no evidence for it because ears, throats, all the things that you need to hear and make sound typically don't usually fossilize. No, not, not in a way that gives you missing all that nice soft tissue. That's so important for, for sound generation. And so typically, vote, you know, making sound is a soft tissue thing. Not always, which we will get to, but very often it is. So when you do get these insights, it opens amazing windows. That's what we're going to focus on in this episode. This episode, instead of being a, let's go over you know, the, the field of paleobioacoustics, we're going to go over some examples, some of those times where we've gotten some potential insights into what the past might have sounded like because there have been some really cool moments of amazing findings or new techniques applied to something that allowed us to learn about what things uh, sounded like back then. And to start it off, I want to talk about how we think they sound now. Yes. <laughs> because man, oh man, do we have some misconceptions about Dinosaur noises. <laughs> you have an, an idea in your brain about what prehistoric creatures, specifically dinosaurs. Yes, specifically dinosaurs. Is, I don't think a lot of effort has gone into a pop culture notion of what other prehistoric animals sounded like. Well, because for most of the other ones, if you, know, if you have something that looks like an animal that's still around today, eh, you just give it that noise. You know? Yeah, like mammoths just yeah. sound like elephants. Just an which elephant. Is probably... A good, a good yeah, approximation. You're probably not too far off. But dinosaurs are so different. We don't have anything that looks like a triceratops today. So what in the world sound was that making? You know, how, how does a beak that big sound? You mm -hmm. know? And we have gotten answers in the form of movies and video games and TV. 
the most famous of which and the most iconic of which, because you'll hear these sounds in other places, is Jurassic Park, obviously. Right. Jurassic Park has kind of laid the groundwork for what most people picture as the sound of dinosaurs. But they had to create all that from scratch. That's called sound design when you are going around collecting and typically then reworking, combining, overlaying, slowing down, speeding up those sounds to create sounds that never existed. This was made famous with Star Wars and movies like that, that, you know, what does a lightsaber sound like? I don't know. That's not a thing. You know, <laughs> so they had to make a sound for it and they had to do the same thing with dinosaurs. And I found, and we you'll get a link to this because it's a fun, fun read, an interview with Gary Reinstrom, who was the sound designer for Jurassic Park and went through some of the major sounds he used. Oh, cool. So let's take a quick insight into what you were actually hearing when you were hearing some of your favorite dinosaurs. <laughs> Starting off with the most iconic one, and just to give Gary his, his dues, we are not bashing his work here uh, at oh, all. Oh, no, they sound great in the movie. And he got two Academy Awards for it, so... We, we are agreed with. And they I remember watching the behind the scenes, which is on YouTube somewhere. Maybe we'll find that and link to it. In the oh, yeah, yeah, as well, yeah. Where they talked about how they didn't want to use stock sounds. Mm -hmm. So they went out and made all new sounds. So they a lot of awesome work went into this. Just because it's wrong doesn't mean it's not fun. No, he's he's done an amazing job. He's been nominated for 17 other awards throughout his career so he's good at what he does <laughs> good on you gary he notes that the sounds are a bit strange for some of these and even a little raunchy so <laughs> there's some weird ones in here oh it's gonna be in a, a mature episode ah, it's all animal stuff so don't worry uh <laughs> like well, they do on the discovery channel yes <laughs> we'll start with the velociraptors because they made a crazy amount of sounds and some of these are what you would probably expect like when it puffs its nose on the kitchen window door that's a horse the bre a breathing of a horse and they use horses in a lot of the other dinosaurs as well so that was a actual exhale of an animal one that i think is particularly fitting when it the noise it makes as it hisses out of the bushes right next to robert muldoon before he says clever girl is a goose Oh, hey, that's fitting. Yeah, because geese are nasty. Also terrifying. A goose made that noise? Yes, yes. They're very aggressive and irritable animals. And if yeah. you bother them, which he said is not hard, all you have to do is stick a mic toward them. They'll <laughs> really happy to perform <laughs> this raspy hiss. And that's that's as he put it, that a hiss is Muldoon is that Muldoon hears before he dies is a goose. Yeah. <laughs> The screams they make and the barks they make are the ones that are kind of funny. The barks they make to communicate to one another is, oh, oh, those mm -hmm. really... We, we don't have the probably the rights to use no, the sound, so no. we're just going to do our best impressions. Yeah, that. no, you guys, it's theater of the mind. <laughs> you've, you've seen the movie. Theater of the mind. That cool, that, cool noise. Yes. Turtle, that's tortoise sex. What? That's tortoises mating. I did not know that. That's at Marine awesome. World. <laughs> <laughs> Holy cow, that's incredible. He noted that it takes a while, so you need to have plenty of time if you're going to record <laughs> that sound. Well, the, the tortoise the tortoise has to get in yes, the mood. Yes. They got to set the scene. And evidently it was offered to him. They were like, hey, do you want to film these tortoises having sex? <laughs> He's like, really? They're like, yeah. And you say, yes, of course. The raptor screams those high-pitched, you know, you know, 
that's really I can't you know, we can't even remotely get no, to it. I was I'm not even gonna try. Is a dolphin in heat, a boy dolphin, a male specifically. Hmm, that I knew. I knew that mm-hmm. it was dolphin noises. And it's in heat, he specifies, because animals tend to make very unique sounds compared to their usual ones while in heat. That makes sense. Which comes up a little later on. <laughs> For the baby raptors. These are actually really, really neat because it's completely fitting. For the cute squeaky noises that they're making, they used baby animals. Baby owls, baby foxes, and a couple other things like that. For the unsettling noise it starts to make once Grant realizes it's a raptor, it's just a baby owl, but the creepy sounds they make. (laughs) A baby owl, but at its worst. Yeah, it's just, it's still just the baby owl. I love that. It's just most of the sounds for the baby raptor is a baby dinosaur. Which is fantastic. And I like that it's the same animal. Yes. An animal actually is making that range of noise. Mm -hmm. For the Gallimimus that stampede past them, that flock their way, the squeals they make was a female horse. While in heat, he was recording her, and a male horse ran by her, and she made that noise in response to the male. Hmm. You know. It, because she was reacting to the presence of a male while yeah. in heat, she made a very unusual noise. She so was no- catcalling. Yes. The <laughs> male horse. <laughs> Come over and see me sometime. She was cult calling. Cult. Oh, oh, uh, oh, oh. I'll be here all year, friends. <laughs> the noises they make there are the same ones they make while running and while getting eaten by the T-Rex. Mm-hmm. And speaking of the T-Rex, when it grabs the Gallimimus and our... Blood-sucking and it, lawyer. And shakes, and shakes I know the, I know the answer to this Yes, one. you do. What is it? It's a dog. It's a, the sound guy's his dog. His Rus- if I remember. His Jack Russell Terrier Buster. Yep, playing with a toy. <laughs> yeah, he said he thought of, because he saw <laughs> the goes, image, <laughs> and he thought of his dog pretending to kill its toys. He says his dog shows up in lots of movies. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> right. Famous dog. One of the cool things he mentions with the T-Rex is that on the note of the dog and a couple other things in it that a lot of times if you want to get a really good noise for a big animal, you take a small animal and slow it down and you'll get sounds that you couldn't get from a big animal. Oh, interesting. So they do that a few times. One of the ones, and this was actually started with Star Wars. Uh, ben Burt is the one who did the Star Wars sound design and he used a Chihuahua slowdown for the Rancor in Return of the Jedi. Ooh, what's that? How's the rancor sound? The rancor is that like really slow, but that that like high pitched but rumbly roar that is just like a scream. Is a chihuahua? Slow down. That's fitting, right? For a monster in a <laughs> with, movie with a big pug nose, <laughs> with a big squashed face, and drooling everywhere. The T Rex roar, furthering that example, is the key element is actually a baby elephant, not an adult. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. And then it also that has famous, that famous roar. That famous that- roar. That makes sense. It does have kind of that. There's a little bit of that elephant. Yes. Uh, uh, the the trumpet mm-hmm. almost mm-hmm. noise in there. They also use some imposing things for all of you. They use tiger chuffs and the gargling of alligators for the the T Rex as well. So it's not all small cute stuff. But right, right. Not, not big scary things for all the T Rex's noise. The brachiosaurs were donkey yodels. When you that's fantastic. Slow down the pitch change. You get that that really weird. Yeah, as Grant, as Grant tries to do. Yes, it. <laughs> and, and the sneezing is a whale's blowhole and a fire hydrant. That's phenomenal. 
Holy cow. She got blasted in the face with a fire hydrant and a whale at the same time. Just Oh, man. I want to be a sound designer. I love watching (laughs) interviews with them because they talk about that they just carry around little recorders with them. I saw one guy who was talking about he went to a gas station, and when he opened the fridge for the drinks, the fan was like was squeaking you know was doing a little rattle squeaky noise that he found that it was particularly unique and so he stuck his recorder in the fridge and then walked around the gas station for like 10 minutes so that he could get enough sound <laughs> before pulling it out i like that it's like an artist going around looking for colors and compositions in nature for inspiration absolutely but as a sound person going like hey that that tailpipe's making a weird noise. Let me get some of that. Yep, that's going to be a spaceship someday. <laughs> For one of the most emotional scenes in the movie, the Triceratops. As he put it, a lot of cows. A lot of cows. <laughs> that makes sense. Makes sense. Big that's herbivore fitting. with horns. But also the breathing, the sick breathing that Grant listens to when he puts his ear to the belly mm-hmm. is one of the only non-biological sounds that they used. He said he had a long cardboard tube with a spring in it that act as a reverb device that helped to stretch out and deepen and weirdify sounds. Huh. And so while a bunch of part of the breathing is cows, the rest of it is him breathing into that tube. Oh, that's cool. So it's his breathing. It's actually his breathing. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. And then finally, this one is probably the one that most people were able to hear something from if you were noticing any of the dinosaurs is the Dilophosaurus. Oh, the rattle? The rattle of the frill is a is a rattlesnake. Yes. And the rasp is a hawk. That Oh, cool. That really awful inhale. Yeah, that's yeah, a yeah, hawk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is terrifying. But the Did little Did it say what the cute noise was? The cute noise was a swan. Yeah. That when he's being oh, all cute cool. with Nedry is a swan. Fun, right? I love how many bird noises made it in, by the way. That's yeah, awesome for this that's movie. that's really very nice. So I like that it it's a mixture mm-hmm. of reptile and bird noises, although notably a lot of them, and I, I think this is important to keep in mind, yes. a lot of them are mammal noises. A lot of mammal noises, because it's what we recognize. Yep. Well, and because that's, if you want a big animal, yep. mammals are readily available, so they're easy to get noises from. Yep. This is and basically the point we're trying to make here. Once again, not bashing the sound in Jurassic Park because they still are awesome. And for a lot of these, we still don't have an idea. Like I don't oh, have yeah. any information for you what the Lophosaurus sounded like. But we need to acknowledge that it's a movie, and just because dinosaurs sound one way in our heads from childhood does not mean that's how they sounded. Because it's the same backlash we get from the putting feathers on them and ruining <laughs> childhood images. Is It's a movie. It's a wonderful movie that we love and is dear to us, but it is a movie. And those sound, that sound design is based on the assumption that dinosaurs would be making sounds that are familiar to us. Yes. Right? The big roar, right? When we think of a big animal, we think of those big roars because that's what lions and tigers and bears do. I didn't mean to make that reference, but I did. (laughs) But dinosaurs were different. And so we don't... It it resonates with an audience, right? If you're a movie maker and you say, I want this animal to be scary. Mm -hmm. All right, you go out and you find noises that we associate with scary animals. That's exactly what I was about to say is that there's also the storytelling element that 
this animal's supposed to be endearing. This one's supposed to be intimidating. This one's supposed to be unnerving. This one's right. supposed to be awe-inspiring. So we find sounds that fit that and color designs that fit that. And that's based on our experience with living creatures. Yes. Which is not the same as 100 million years ago. Absolutely. So let's let's start off with the big one you brought up. Could dinosaurs roar? Which is a big question. Could Would we have been hearing giant carnivore bellows and roars ringing throughout the forests of, you know, the Cretaceous Midwest. Right. You think of the the tiger, which is just that throaty, it's way down in the in Utterly the intimidating. Right. Bear sound. Yeah. Well, t- before we go over that, I first have to talk a little bit about how animals make noises, because this is going to come up throughout the whole episode. So let's talk about what a larynx is. Okay. So... Your larynx. Let's meet our mascot, Larry the Larynx. <laughs> Larry the Larynx. Hi, everybody! Uh, <laughs> from, from your blood. <laughs> your larynx is also known as your voice box, and it's what most vertebrates, most land animals, use to make noise. It is going to be at the top of the throat for most animals, and typically, not always, we're, there's lots of variety, but... For us, suspended from that hyoid bone right at the top of the throat. And it's a series of folded tissue known as your vocal folds or vocal cords. And these are what vibrate as we breathe over them. And the muscles attached to these folds and the arches of your larynx, which are usually cartilage-based, can expand it and scrunch it and move it to make all these different sounds. Yeah, so what you went that that rumble. This is why when you when you feel your throat when you're making noise, you can feel it vibrating. That's that air passing over and vibrating those folds. And if you were to like change pitch, you could actually feel your throat move a little bit because it's adjusting to the sound you're trying to make. Now, this usually does not fossilize. So we don't have a lot of evidence for fossil not evidence, but we don't have a lot of information on fossil larynxes and voice boxes. Mm-hmm. But we also need to talk about something called a syrinx. Yes. Because that's another voice make, noise-making device that birds have. So the syrinx is very, very similar to the larynx, but instead of being at the top of your throat, it's at the bottom where it splits way into your down. lungs all the way down. And for birds, this is very important. It's what they use to do their singing. Now... This was not well known in fossil birds until a bird that preserved a very, very, very well preserved syrinx in its fossil named, they gave us E.I. 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 It's fitting. (laughs) (laughs) This is a bird from the late Cretaceous, 68 million years ago. Ridiculously good condition and preserved that syrinx. To date, the oldest found in the fossil record. Yeah, it's a cool fossil. This is really cool. And it can now teach us a little bit about the origin of this organ and its history. Because without before this fossil, the mystery of when the syrinx showed up was unanswered, as well as would dinosaurs have a syrinx? Right. Is this just a bird feature? It's a, or is it something that yes. evolved earlier? Because if it did... Dinosaurs may have been chirping and singing like birds. Mm -hmm. So this syrinx, they looked at uh, in comparison to modern birds to try to figure out 
whatever they could about it. What kind of sounds it might be making, who the bird was related to, so on and so forth. Fun fact on the syrinx, it's also called the squawk box. <laughs> I love that. Awesome. And it's named after the Greek nymph who got turned into panpipes, which are the little pipes that split off just like the windpipe does. Oh, that's fun. Isn't that neat? Looking at this syrinx in comparison to the skeletal material as well, they found that it is most similar to ducks and geese, modern ducks and geese. So okay. Vegavis was probably similar to them and probably making similar sounds. Uh, they they quote, was it honking or quacking? We can't know. Right, right. But it was probably making some calls like that and could potentially have been making higher pitched calls, kind of like a, a rooster or crow. You know, so maybe mm. a little bit more up there. But it, it was not probably whistling, chirping. It was more in that category. Right, right. Now, this is notable because if this is the earliest one, this is definitely a bird, which means that... If this is toward the beginning of when syrinxes showed up, which is not likely because it actually seems more complex than some modern syrinxes. So there was a lot of time to diversify. So it, there's that. probably a more basal, a more simplistic form of a syrinx earlier in their history that we've just mm -hmm. yet to find. But this seems to suggest, due to the lack of evidence of syrinxes in non-avian dinosaurs, that it developed later in bird evolution. So it's a bird thing. So that it's a bird thing, not a dinosaur thing that birds took with them. Which would mean that if dino that dinosaurs wouldn't have it, so they wouldn't be singing. Now, alternatively, it may go back to the base and dinosaurs could have had a larynx and a syrinx. We'd have to find that to know. But right now, it's not necessarily looking that way. Okay. So it's, it's leaning away from birds from dinosaurs chirping and tweeting and singing like a bird would unless they evolved a similar feature which would be awesome uniquely i it sounds like we we don't we don't have we don't have a good knowledge yeah. of that one but right now it's not this one definitely doesn't seem like it was you know it's not leaning toward it being a dinosaur ancestral trait now right. them evolving their own structure could happen cuz they mentioned that the syrinx seems to be a truly unique innovation of evolution that it was not building off of a previous sound making structure like it it developed in a very unique way so it is a interesting very interesting. odd piece of bird evolution but if we go on the assumption for the rest of this discussion that dinosaurs did not have a syrinx this gives us some potential clues for what they may have been doing to make sound because birds do not just sing, they can also do what is called closed mouth vocalization, which is when they are making noises without opening their beak, but inside their body cavity. Usually some inflatable part that actually lets them amplify it. Very much like how frogs have those little, those big pouches. Yeah. But birds do that as well as their cousins, the crocodilians. So these closed mouth vocalizations are typically affected by resonating a chamber inside birds often have an inflatable cavity a flesh sack as one thing called it <laughs> or esophageal nice. esophageal pouch which is typically where you'll see it on birds is right in the throat but that like waddle kind yeah, of yeah and some birds thing. can inflate it sometimes just a little bit sometimes a lot yep and they use that to resonate the sound from their 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 chest and their breath instead of directly out the mouth 
and over the syrinx, they can do it just there. This opens up a new way to make sound for our potential dinosaurs. One of the things that also supports that this is very likely something some dinosaurs were doing, if not most dinosaurs, we don't know, is a bit of research that looked at the vocal data, the vocal sounds and range of archosaurs, uh, modern ones, of course, and found that a quarter of the 200 bird species they analyzed made closed mouth vocalizations. Oh, interesting. So this is something that is very widespread. Very widespread. T the typical trend is smaller birds tend not to make it. So like sparrows and finches and tiny things like that. While bigger bodied birds, you know, even, you know, even though this is not big, big dove sized ostriches, the cassowary, these tend to make those sounds. So larger bodies tend to be the more common uh, birds making this type of noise. And it tends to be lower frequency, which travels longer distances this will become a very common theme throughout this podcast <laughs> lower frequencies travel farther higher frequencies travel shorter so you tend to see long-range communication being in the low register not only is it common among birds but it seems to have evolved individually in many of the groups according to the research 16 distinct animal lineages seems to seem to have developed this closed mouth vocalization of some sort or another, including birds and crocodilians. So it's not likely ancestral to birds, which means absolutely dinosaurs could have evolved it by themselves on their own as well. Cool. And we should distinguish between closed mouth, like you can close your mouth and make a noise, mm -hmm. but you're still making it the same way. You're still passing air up your, your throat. It's going out your nose. Yeah, it's coming out your nose instead of your mouth. Because if you close your nose... If you hold your nose and close your mouth and then hum, <laughs> you'll notice that there's still air coming up. <laughs> it, it would be uh, like... If, they have a specific structure in place, like the frog uh, thing you mentioned, like those pouches. It'd be like if you could hum in your chest, you know, which is yes. not, not something that we can really do, but it's that kind of concept. So going off of this idea, some people took it a step further and said, all right, if dinosaurs were making this noise, what kind of noise would a dinosaur an animal that size produce resonating its chest or throat cavity yes and so they looked at some that do that this was part of a documentary that was done but professor clark at the university of texas was the one who made the sound and they were wanting to look at what a t-rex potentially could sound like because that's t-rex so yeah 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 that's what that's the one you go with they used two different sounds a eurasian a eurasian bittern, which is a type of bird, and vocalizations from, the article said Chinese crocodiles, which isn't a thing, so Chinese alligators, or alligators, or Siamese crocodiles, hmm. crocodilians. They, a crocodilian from China. They, they make very similar noises. There's some differences. Chinese alligators are more of a cough, while American alligators are more of a rumble, but it's, they all make very similar rumblings in their chest. They looked at these sounds to, using modern archosaurs, simulate what a t-rex might sound like now they make very unique sounds and you're about to hear the sound of not the eurasian but the great bittern and these files that we'll be using are from uh, a really great sound source this first one was provided by roger tartars and it is from the macaulay library at cornell lab of ornithology file ml202485 listen out 
So we'll link to the sound files. Yeah, check the blog post and the the, the description. We'll put yes, these absolutely. in the description of the podcast. Yes. The bittern makes a really weird boom, a deep boom. Just this. Boom. It has a big throat pouch and it's just, you expect it to sound like us going boom. But no, it's, it's like a bass drum mm. that just, you feel it through your feet. And it's a long-distance mating call that you actually hear in a number of birds. Cassowaries do booms like this. There's a, um, it's the the flightless parrot that's in New Zealand. I can't remember. Oh, the car the carap carapo. Yes, yes. Yep. You keep talking. I'm gonna look it up. It it can make a sound that like sounds throughout its mountain range. And so that's cool. (laughs) These birds are making these deep sounds. They use the bittern. And then they also used the bellow of an alligator, the rumbling gargle of an alligator. Here is alligator Mississippiensis making one of these bellows, the American alligator, from by George B. Reinard, also from the Macaulay Library at Cornell Lab of Ornithology, ML163792. This one's probably one most of you have heard before. It's that typical mating sound that they produce to signify territory and to uh, attract mates. And And that real deep rumble. It's it's terrifying. It's an amazing sound. The parrot is a cockapo, by the way. Cockapo. Yes, it is. That's, That's what it is. Thanks, Internet. One of the cool things about these kind of vocalizations is that it is carrying a lot more energy because it's so much lower. It actually makes the water dance and vibrate as they do it. Yeah, it does. It It, looks super cool. It's like they're popping popcorn on their back. It's just the water is going crazy. So they are traveling it. They're traveling the sound through the water. They took these sounds, put them together a little bit, and then they had to do a little bit of guesswork to fill in the soft tissue stuff of what might be making the sound. But... They scaled it up to the size of a T-Rex-sized animal and got this ridiculously deep, only way to describe it is ominous rumble. It makes me think of an engine. It does. It sounds like... like a real big engine. Like, like a generator under your house. Just... Yeah. We'll link you to a video that can let you hear what it sounds like. But it is ridiculously low. And if it were producing something this deep, it actually may have been, as they put it, felt instead of heard. It may have potentially reached infrasound. Yeah, which is what elephants do. Which is what elephants, elephants do. A number of infrasound is, is very cool. Too low for us to hear. Yeah, and that's exactly what it means. Something below twenty hertz, which is the normal limit to our hearing. Most, low sound. Yeah, a lot of large animals use this: rhinos, hippopotamus, elephants, whales, giraffes, mm-hmm. which I didn't know. Yeah, uh, I had, I didn't know that, which is yeah, awesome. It's cool. 
Uh, that's like a tuning fork making infrasound, which is <laughs> crazy. And then the alligators. Infrasound allows you to communicate over long distance. It's often too low for others to hear, so it can often go undetected by other animals. And for whales, they can communicate over literally miles because they are yeah. the blue whale is the lar- loudest voice of any, and they can communicate almost coast to coast in some areas. Like it's That's it's insane. just like who needs telephones, right? Yeah, just you literally just shout and hey Bob, what? <laughs> I wonder how long it takes to hear it. That is a very good question. I wonder question. what the delay is. That'd be kind of fun to know. Not as long as it would take us because sound travels faster through a medium than air. So There you go. It would it would travel somewhat efficiently. <laughs> to look into this, they looked at the brain case of the T-Rex and found that it contained the outlines for the hearing organs that suggests, this is not a definite, but suggests that it would have had sensitive hearing especially for low frequencies. So this seems to support that it would have been listening for low calls, potentially from other T-Rex. Interesting. A lot of studies have been done looking at how, looking at correlations between the kinds of sounds that an animal is capable of making and the kinds of sounds that it is most attuned to hear. Yes. Because sound, one of the dominant functions of sound is communication. Yep. So many, many, it is very, very common that animals are best attuned to hear the types of sounds they themselves are able to make. So low sound, even if not infrasound, just that, like the bittern, like the alligator, making those way down here, low frequency sounds. As you said, this is a a trend in the studies, and we will see this a couple more times as we are going through things. This is a very hypothetical, if dinosaurs didn't have a syrinx, and if they used closed mouth vocalizations... And if they were similar to their closest modern day relatives, and if T-Rex made them, this is what it might have sounded like. Right. It's supported slightly by the hearing and the fact that this is a common trait. So it's not like this is complete conjecture, but there's not direct hard evidence for many steps in this discussion. So let's talk about some dinosaurs that give us some hard evidence. Oh boy. Oh boy. Dinosaurs that shouted at the mud loud enough <laughs> to leave sound wave patterns that we can study. Makes me think of that video where they put mics in front of all the, the mammals. <laughs> ah! uh, we're going to link that on the, the social media because I want everyone in the world to enjoy that video. It is one of my favorite videos on the internet. The discussion building up to it is my is my favorite, <laughs> favorite part. You'll all, you'll all see it. We'll post Whew. it up there. There is a wonderful group of dinosaurs known as the hadrosaurs, the duck-billed dinosaurs that are affectionately named. These are those big herbivores famous among North America and Asia that were full, had a mouth full of flat grinding teeth to be able to eat any plant they came across. And some of them got massive. One group, specifically the lambiosaurs or the lambiosaurines, are noteworthy for having very ornate crests over their nose and sometimes even across and behind the back of their head. Yeah, if you've seen a dinosaur with a weird crest, Parasaurolophus, Parasaurolophus. the famous one with the long six-foot yes. tube sticking out the back of its yes. head. But Lambiosaurus had the split one and Carithosaurus had the... little. It looks like a little uh, uh, saucer sticking up on its head, like a mohawk. Yeah, like a plate. 
yep. is, is stuck in there. All those crested mm-hmm. hadrosaur, the really fancy crests, are lambiosaurines. These nowadays are pretty famous for having that resonating chamber in there. But we didn't always know that. That's right. not something that we've always known. So there's been ways that we had to find it out. You know, now it's in every book about them. But when they were first found, it, what is that thing? That's really weird. So there's two main groups, the Parasaurolophines and the Lambiosaurophines or the Carithosaurines. As we mentioned, Parasaurolophus and its cousins have those banana-shaped crests. Some very long, some short and curved. And then the others have those flat, the Lambiosaurs and Coriathosaurs have those flat ones. Both like mohawks. Yes, like mohawks. Both, though, are hollow with lots of passageways inside. Right. It's it's the nasal bones. It's the nasal. Extend up into there. And so it's that the same chambers we were talking about in the ankylosaurs. And it just wraps around inside there before coming back down into the throat. When Perserolophus was first discovered, there was a whole bunch of solutions given to what this thing was. Some very similar to the ankylosaur. Others hilarious. <laughs> Some suggested that it, too was for temperature control or to enhance smell. Mm -hmm. And sound resonation was suggested fairly early on. But there was also suggestions that it was a weapon, that it was for display, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah. That it was to deflect foliage, especially for Parasaurolophus that had this big swoop over the back of it, that it was pushing stuff out of its way. Naturally, which you know when you when you you hold the you push that stick out of the way when yeah. you're walking through the woods yeah. and it snaps back. If you just had a big crest, well, uh, <laughs> as far as I'm remembering correctly, uh, cassowaries have that big helmet, and uh, that, oh yeah, that's that suggested. Yeah, same thing was suggested with them just push the through foliage. the underbrush. The funny ones, which are silly now, but I mean when you were looking at this thing for the first time, you know who knows what idea you have that it was to act as a snorkel. While they swam, yep. because it was thought that these animals spent a lot of their time in water early on. Or, and I like this one, that it was to hold extra air while diving. Oh, that's actually kind of cool. That's like an a, oxygen tank. Yeah, that you would just breathe in and <laughs> fill this big nose with air, and then you'd be able to breathe off of it longer while you're underwater. That's hilarious. I like it. Now, most of these have been left by the wayside, and most of them were left behind early on. Like the snorkel and the oxygen tank, those were swept aside pretty quickly. But others still have some significance to them. So they've done research, and it pretty quickly showed that they absolutely were good for resonating chambers. Like a trombone, just all, or a tuba, or a French horn, just all this this pattern and labyrinth of tubes that move your sound around in different ways. David Weishampel was one of the ones famous for doing some of the early acoustic studies and finding that it, and using that comparison of working like a trombone and he actually created one out of pvc pipe to simulate just how it would amplify a voice <laughs> that he would take around like the classes and stuff jurassic park three yep yep <laughs> this resonating chamber would have had the effect of lowering the frequency of the sound once again big animal making low frequency yeah, sounds yeah. and once again the ears research on the inside of the skull seemed to suggest that they would have had hearing for a lower register so that they likely could have been hearing this. They also have found that individual species of Parasaurolophus seem to have distinct calls, different frequencies and pitches. We talked about it in our sharks episode. That was one of our newses. 
Yes, it was. Mm-hmm. Different different sounds and different parasaurolophenes. Now, they may also have been so different. There's been some things that suggest that there may have been sexual dimorphism within the crests so that males would have sounded different than females. Interesting. And that pot- makes sense. Potentially, they don't have a lot of really complete specimens. There might be even individuals so that individuals could tell individuals apart, sort of like dolphins using different calls to signify themselves. Those last that wouldn't two surprise me at all. No, those makes lots of sense, but they have not yet been confirmed. So right. those last last two are things that make sense, and there's a little bit of suggestion for, but we have yet to confirm that. Another cool study I wanted to mention on this was for those Mohawk crested lambiosaurs. These were researched not too long ago to distinguish whether or not the cooling system and enhancing smell were at all viable. Because once again, a body part does not have to have a single usage. Right. You know, these absolutely show signs that they were resonating chambers, but when CT scan showed very little uh, uh, nasal passages that would have gone towards smelling, there wasn't many adaptations in there for smell, and the scan of the brain, the lobe of the brain that would have handled smell, the olfactory section of the brain was not very developed it was fairly simplistic so doesn't seem to be helping there there was not a lot of evidence that they were using it for heat because they didn't see the structures that you would expect to see where heat would be released from these so it seems to be much more just for the sound and the one that i thought was very cool is that one of them in particular hypacrosaurus had a crest that was particularly complex internally but didn't look any different on the outside Oh, interesting. Which goes against the idea that it had a external display quality. Because otherwise, why wouldn't you be making it more ornate if you were using it for that? It seems that the focus very much was for this resonating chamber. Cool part on that is, once again, their ears seem to be sensitive to lower frequencies. But they also found that some of the adults show signs that they'd be receptive to higher frequencies which is important because when you look at babies to adults, the babies seem to be making higher frequency sounds and the adults seem to be making lower frequency sounds. Lower frequency sounds travel far to communicate with individuals or herds, but a high frequency baby seemed to still be able to get the ear of its adult. So there was signs of parental oh, care. Cool. Yeah. Like the difference between an, that adult alligator noise we talked about. Yes. And the little chirps that babies make. It's so... It's giving us some evidence of how these animals were behaving, not just how they were sounding, which is cool. I like the thought. It makes perfect sense that dinosaurs would have been noisy mm-hmm. because crocs are noisy. Birds are noisy. It, that, it tracks, right? Yes. A lot of animals make a lot of noises. The thought that it could have been a lot of these low frequency, right? Like elephant style sounds just like walking across a landscape full of herds of dinosaurs i wonder if you would have felt it i wonder if there was just like a background hum well it's like if you sit in a car with uh subwoofers yeah and you just feel the inside of the car the air is a rumble you can feel it vibrating against your skin like when you're at a at a club or something and the music is too loud (laughs) and you you feel it absolutely no it it was it would be a crazy it, i feel like it would just be unnerving now some some animal the other thing that a lot of 
birds and crocs today will do is they make like hissing noises yes. and stuff absolutely which is like a, a vultures new world vultures don't have a syrinx mm-hmm. and they make grunts and hisses and and things like that which is also totally within the realm of possibility oh yeah there's lots of other ways they could be making noise a quick couple of last notes. There was a similar attempt to recreate the sound of Parasaurolophus as there was for T-Rex. This one using the physical structure of the crest. CT scanning, a particularly well-preserved four-and-a-half-foot-long skull. Scientists at Sandia National Laboratories, along with New Mexico Museum of Natural History and Science, worked together with paleontologist Tom Williamson and the computer scientist Carl Biegert to CT scan, study, and simulate have the computer produce what sounds would likely come out of this crest once again filling in soft tissue blanks since we don't know whether or not they had larynxes they did sounds with and without larynx or syrinx larynx interesting they did both with and without because we have we have not found it so we do not know for sure and produced a very interesting sound which we will let you listen to now To hear that when you're walking through the trees. It <laughs> <laughs> would have been a noisy place. It would have been very noisy. The last note I wanted to make on this before we move to our next section is there is one other animal that I was able to find that used similar nasal passages to potentially make resonating sounds, and it was a wildebeest. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> is this the, oh man, the fossil one? Yep. That came out a couple of years ago that had the hadrosaur-like crest? Yep. There is a wildebeest from late Pleistocene Africa named Russing Oryx, a topocarian, that had very similar trumpet-like nasal passage that seems to have also been used as a resonating chamber. The reason this is so cool is we don't see this in any other mammals that are using it. Wow. a structure like this. Late Pleistocene means we missed it by a few tens of thousands of years. The op- the opportunity to see an, an a comparison, an analog for the hadrosaurs. A honking wildebeest. A it would honking have been, wildebeest. It would have been so cool. That's awesome. Once again, the inner ear agrees with the, the sound the nose might have been making, which is low-frequency sounds. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so it was a noisy place. The world's been a noisy place for quite a while. So during the the Cretaceous, you would have had potentially these big, low-frequency rumbling dinosaurs and birds. Yes. Chirping and tweeting, or at least honking and, you know, <laughs> doing, doing duck and chicken type noises. Yeah. Very, very cool. It would have been a very unique sounding place. Now, those are all sounds that we have no reference for. Next, I would like to talk a little bit about sounds that we do have references for. One's a little closer to home. After this break, we're going to talk about some of those more recent. Well, at least most of them are more recent. One of them isn't. Some of those more (laughs) recent, more recognizable sounds from the fossil record. So stay tuned. So when we're talking about 
bioacoustics, the sounds animals make, there's one sound in particular that is probably more distinctive than most others that we know, and that's a tiger's roar. I say tiger's roar because most lion's roar, lion roars that you actually hear and remember are tigers. Lion King, hmm. MGM, those are tigers, not lions. Interesting. Yeah. They make a better roar is what basically everyone who makes <laughs> movies says. Is a lion's roar is a very, mm, well, the tiger is that deep, intimidating, terrifying Shere Khan roar. Yeah. So tigers, tiger roar is really impressive. And we're going to talk about it a little bit because cat roars are weird. They are not something all cats can do. Which is to me interesting. That's that's be like if there was uh, not all horses could whinny or something. I don't. Know, it's like yeah, no. It's a, it's a big cat thing. That's a big cat thing, and it has to do with the structure of their larynx. That voice box again. There's basically two setups for the cat larynx. One cats that, as they typically say, purr but don't roar. Their larynx has eleven bones to, that make up their hyoid arches. Now remember, I said on ours the hyoid is what suspends most of our larynx they actually have little bones in theirs that make up these arches that really is their voice box so their hyoid is different and their vocal folds the vocal cords are shaped like little triangles that go into the airway and vibrate and these are most of your small cats purring not roaring bobcat yeah house, house cats circles and those kind of things yeah you can hear that there's a growl in there if it could just, yes. <laughs> just enough oomph. Your other cats, your cats that roar, but don't typically purr, or at least not the same, their hyoids are extremely different, composed of five to six bones. And that's that that, that loud lion roar, tiger And roar. the vocal cords, the folds, are square-shaped. Much more resilient. They're stronger. They're tougher. Able oh, they're to, rigid? They're, well, they're, they're still flexible, but they're able to take on the strain of a roar. Oh, okay, interesting. And so they have a much, vocal cords that are much better designed for this roaring noise. These are most of your pantherine cats, the big cats, lions, leopards, tigers, so forth. So the interesting thing here is that those structures are not 100%. Just because you have one doesn't mean you have to make that noise necessarily. Because, for instance... The snow leopard has the same larynx as other big cats, but does not roar. Okay. Sh should be able to, but doesn't. So just because you have it doesn't mean you do roar. I emphasize that because if we're talking about big cats, and this is a paleontology podcast, <laughs> the question arises, could Smilodon roar? Yes, our saber tooths. That picture, that classic Charles R. Knight painting of smilodon standing on the rock outcrop fangs out mouth open fangs out over the the landscape that you you see it and you picture the tiger roar the, the pride rock roar yes could they could it, could it do that potentially or, or was it up there going caca <gasps> <laughs> 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 The interesting thing is that we do have some evidence for this. Oh, boy. And surprise, surprise, it comes from the La Brea Tar Pits over in California. I've heard of that place. This is where a lot of Smilodon fossils come from. Smilodon fatalis is that famous saber-toothed cat that we all talk about and that most studies are on. I 
had a news piece that mentioned the fact that other saber-toothed cats tend to get lost in the shuffle. But, yes, other saber-toothed cats are available. We're going to focus on this one because it's what the research I found focused on. <laughs> so, <laughs> sorry, other saber-tooths. At this fossil site, which is a tar pit that has preserved the bones of mostly predators. It's a what we call a predator yes. trap. So it it's has... A, it's a series of tar pits, even. Yes, there's it is. A, there's a bunch of them, all with predators in them. Dire wolves and saber-tooths. And saber-tooths are the second most common large mammal found at the Librea tar pits after dire wolves. Yes. And this becomes important because they had found a bunch of little bones. Little one to four inch long bones. Little curved, narrow bones. About 150 of them over the time of digging there. And it's only been recently that those were identified as hyoid arches. Hyoid bones. And further analysis confirmed that they were smilodon hyoid bones. So we have parts of their larynx. Very cool. Which is very exciting. They reconstructed, and the current reconstruction had five hyoid bones inside. Like a big cat. Like a big cat, which means if the larynx shared the rest of the features, that this could be a roaring smilodon. That's that's one of those things that's not surprising if true. Yeah. But cool, fun to know. It's a really interesting thing. It does give us some potential suggestions. Maybe they were more social. There have been other studies that have suggested that they might be gregarious or pack hunting. Mm -hmm. Now, roaring does not guarantee you're social because tigers have the best roar, as we already mentioned, and they are not social. They are, they're pretty solitary. Right. And most cats are not. Yes. It would be an unusual thing, at least compared to modern cats. Absolutely. It would be the, the odd man out in that sense. But there is a high potential that it had at least the physical ability to roar. If it was like the snow leopard and did not roar, what can you do? They also suggest that the small cat larynx, the 9 to 11 hyoid bones, is probably the ancestral condition, which means that the roaring may have occurred separately in the modern big cats and these saber-toothed cats. Right, it would have evolved yeah, convergently. That they simplified down to less hyoid bones. I would wonder if that's if if that big roar is associated with territoriality. That would be my assumption, typically. Because that's a thing you get with with tigers and wolves, I think. Yeah, it's also part of their the reason they howl is if you can hear this, you're too close, kind of thing. It, well, yeah, it's that if you can hear this and you're part of my pack, come over here. If you can hear this and you're not part of my pack, yeah, you're you are now too close. Please. Back away to the designated safe distance of not hearing me. <laughs> so I wonder if that if that would be a clue at the be, the the territorial behavior of a saber tooth, that it could be communication either as a group or the exact opposite of a group, yep. telling people to get out of here. Well, and you also get like bears that roar d during combat. You know that while they're fighting, oh, it's an intimidation. It's intimidating. You know they're bellowing at each other. And yeah. and literally yelling at each other the way bar fighters do. <laughs> big, big animals like uh, bison do that, too. They make a lot of noise. Yeah. I've seen a bison fight, and they make oh. a lot of noise at each other. That sounds terrifying. Oh, it was, it was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Now, when it comes to predators making noise, territoriality, teamwork, intimidation, those are all great, but not all noises are for communication. Wh what? I've heard I've heard it said I don't know if this is true 
that the purring of cats is at a frequency yes. that helps their bones heal faster. I have heard that with cats, and I've also heard that there's evidently a frequency with the tiger growl that not like physically stuns, but like stuns the prey and in the fact oh. that it is it is that deep, low frequency rumble. So that there are functions to the sound other than just hearing it. That's cool. That was a side note. Yeah, yeah. I, I pulled it aside. Cats, cats are aliens. Yeah. One of the other. Yeah, don't say it too loudly. <laughs> I can't. I can't. I can't agree with that. She's listening. <laughs> it's okay, David. It's okay. <laughs> One of the other uses for sound is in hunting, specifically echolocation. Yeah. This is another use for bioacoustics. That we have some cool evidence of in the fossil record. Oh, boy. I assume not from bats. Nope. What help do they ever give us? <laughs> <laughs> not a great fossil record, bats. No. Echolocation, otherwise known as biosonar, is the same concept as our ship and submarine sonar, where you are sending out high energy, high frequency this time. We're not talking about low frequency stuff now. High frequency sounds, typically into the water but with bats into the air as well, bouncing them off your surroundings, picking them up with very sensitive, precise hearing, and forming a picture of the world around you, including the prey you're looking for. You're listening for the echo, the yes. rebound, and then sound bounces off of things in different ways. And this is this is the way that it is on, like, when you see the, the sonar on ships where yep. the thing is spinning around, it goes boop, 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 and it's showing you the shape. And this is the same way that laser scanners work, but bouncing off light and so on and so forth. The two groups it's most common in is whales and bats. Now, bats have a very poor fossil record, as we already mentioned. So we're going to talk about whales. Again, we talked about whales in episode 41. Go check it out. Yeah, now. we did. Now, if you remember from that, there are two main groups of whales. The mysocetes, the toothless, baleen, filter-feeding whales, which are your big blue whales, humpback whales, right whales. They do not echolocate. They sing but not for hunting. That's for communication. And they sing at a low frequency, which will come up later. The odontocetes are your toothed whales, dolphins, porpoises, orcas, the sperm whale. They echolocate for hunting purposes. They still click and whistle to each other for communication, but they have other clicks for hunting. This is extremely helpful while hunting underwater, where as you go deeper, it gets darker. And if someone kicks up the mud, vision is useless. So... Or squirts you with ink. Yep. Sound ignores all of that and can even go through the sand and give you an x-ray ver vision of your prey. So it's awesome. <laughs> oh, cetaceans are terrible. They're, so they're monsters. They're, they're just <laughs> waiting to take over. Now... Making predator noises. <laughs> they literally are. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, they do this in a really cool way because, once again, slightly different than our other vocalizations up till now, their sound is coming out the nose. It's not using the nose as a resonating chamber it's coming out of the nose and being focused through the shape of the the forehead which is a disc shape and the organ in front of it known as the melon which has air sacs muscles that can reshape it and fatty tissues to focus the sound in a concentrated beam in front of the animal <laughs> we were saying cats are aliens yeah oh yeah Orcas have been known to produce such strong sonar blasts as a group that they can actually corral animals with the force of the noise. Like, <laughs> where the, the noise scares fish away from. Jeez. <laughs> it's intense. 
And then they pick up the sound through their lower jaw into their inner ear, which once again we talked about in our whale episode. The earliest whale we see with evidence of this, which is why it comes up in our fossil discussion, is a whale not too different from a dolphin, but not a dolphin. This is named Cotilocara mesai, which currently is the oldest toothed whale that seems to have possessed echolocation. Cool. It's a pretty cool one. It's a little bit bigger than your typical dolphin. It lived about 28 million years ago, found in the South Carolina region and probably shallow sea environment there. Died out 25, 26 million years ago, so it was not around very long. But it was a decent size. It had a skull that they was preserved, 22 inches long, almost 2 feet, and had a few neck vertebra and ribs, and would have been about 11 feet long, 10 to 11 feet, so a little bit bigger than our dolphins today. Yeah, or bottlenose dolphins specifically. Yeah, so 3 meter long toothed whale, very similar skull to the slender snouted dolphins, the reason they think it had echolocation is because of certain features. It has a very dished forehead, appears to have had a melon. Some of these features are just ones that share heavily with other echolocating whales, like a dense, thick, and downturned rostrum. The snout is reinforced and points in a downward direction. It has air sacs that seem to be similar to those used in echolocating. One that I thought was interesting is cranial asymmetry, which means it's not symmetrical on both sides. Oh, interesting. The only information I could find on this is that there has been suggestions that asymmetry in the skulls of certain dolphins, which has been found in the tooth structure and the tooth layout, especially in the bottom jaw of certain dolphins, might help them in distinguishing the direction of sound as it hits the different sides. Right, right, right. Like an owl's ears being at different directions on either side. But from what I've saw that this doesn't have any direct evidence so this is okay potential but it's something that they share and a exceptionally broad maxilla going in for that sound uh, reception all seem to point that this was an echolocating fairly early whale considering that it was around not too far after whale toothed whales and toothless whales split off about 35 million years ago so oh interesting came up pretty early on once they once they left those filter feeders behind and so this is a a early trait in our toothed whales very cool now one of the other things that's cool about whales is their hearing because toothed whales have to have high-pitched hearing like high-pitched super high-pitched yeah to pick that sonar back and so they have ridiculously specialized hearing for that Toothless whales have low-frequency hearing to pick up their yeah, songs. because they're singing and infrasounding to each yeah. other. Yeah. So which one did early whales have? Oh. This is the question that researchers are trying to answer question. it. Ah, no, I'm not. Now, bats. <laughs> 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 no, there's actually some interesting discovery here. Because until recently, the studies that have been done on this would support both, kind of. One would support... One study would support one finding and another would support the other. So the ancestral state of whale hearing, whether or not they started singing low or listening high, it was kind of unclear until a study included all those protocytes, the early whales, the not yet fully whales that we talked about. These revealed that it didn't have specialized hearing. So those early like amphibious whale groups had not yet specialized. Yes, the reason that the results had kept getting skewed for, in some cases 
was because the inclusion of whale's closest relative, the hippos, threw things off because once they looked at this study and compared, it turns out hippos have some of the most specialized inner ears of all artiodactyls, <laughs> of all the hoofed mammals. So they, so they have, were using hippos as the normal yeah. to compare to, and it turns out they weren't. Yes, yeah, so they were, they were trying to include <laughs> close relatives, but they are far enough away that they have really weird hearing. So early <laughs> whales did not have this specialized hearing, and then they specialized within their groups, which is cool. Very cool. I like that it, it literally, they both just went separate directions, and they went teeth, no teeth, singing, no singing. High-pitched, low-pitched. <laughs> Just everything was opposite. Now, I do have one fun fact on bats before we move away from echolocation. Though we do not have a record of when bats developed echolocation, they, we have found that they developed it almost the exact same way that whales did. Oh? Yes. Before this, it was assumed to just be a classic case of convergent evolution, where two different animals unrelated come to the same biological conclusion while trying to do similar jobs you know while living in similar environments or similar lifestyles their evolutionary path takes them down to looking or functioning in very similar ways but usually it's for very different genetic reasons different you know evolutionary paths reached that point and sometimes even the internal structures are very different but when they looked at the genes of the genetics of bats and dolphins specifically, they found something very interesting. They found that echolocation evolved independently in both due to almost the exact same genetic mutation. Oh, cool. This is not typical of convergent evolution. The initial study that found this saw that both bats and dolphins had the same mutation in a particular protein called Preston. And this affects sensitivity of hearing. They also found several other proteins that were similarly changed. So to further this research, they sequenced the genomes of four new species, you know, not new discovered, but new to being sequenced, of bats, two echolocating, two that don't, as well as two already sequenced, the flying fox and the little brown bat, once again, not echolocating and echolocating as well as a number of other, uh, about a dozen other mammals, including the bottlenose dolphin, and found, they zoomed in on and compared the 23,000 genes that exist in single copies within the bats, and they found at least 200 genes that had independently changed in the same way across bats and dolphins. Fascinating. That's so it's a crazy. genetic convergence. Yes. The same mutations have led to these adaptations. Yes, absolutely. And so this is wow. amazing. But they as they put in the article, also a little bittersweet, because now it means that studies, phylogenetic studies about animal relations to one another that have been using genetics up till now may have been making comparisons that were convergent and not based on family history. Could happen. So there might be a whole bunch of researchers <laughs> out there that we will find out are actually just because of this bizarre form of convergent evolution. It's cool stuff, but yeah, that's that's a big change. Very cool. Now I have two last ones. These are very quick, but they're really, really cool. One, One of, of them is my favorite 
<laughs> one of them is one of the best examples of fossil bioacoustics that exists today. So, not all sounds are for communication. Also, not all sounds are made with the lungs. Not all sounds have to go through your throat, out your nose or your mouth, or into your chest cavity. Some can be made with body parts. Yeah, all the ones that we've talked about so far are air. Breath-related. Like noise, your, yeah, voice, there, it's a voice. It's vocalizations. Now we're talking about just sounds you make with your body. And some of the animals that are most famous for this are insects. The chirping yes. and trilling insects. In China, a fossil was found of a prehistoric katydid. These were just the wings that were initially preserved, but analysis showed that it was most similar to our modern-day katydids. These are kind of like really big crickets if you've never seen a katydid. The coolest thing about this preservation is that it was so well-preserved that the that under microscopic analysis, they saw that the edge structure of the wings that the katydid uses to make noise was also preserved. Yes, the file and the scraper, I believe they're called. Yes, on, on a katydid's wings, there is one wing that has an edge called the file, and then the other has a comb-like structure that it rubs across the file, and that's how they chirp. Grasshoppers and crickets use their legs against their wings to do this, but katydids use their wings alone. Against each other. Yeah, scraping them. It's, that, it's why in the cartoons they show them and the wings just go... Brr, 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 is they literally, they rub their wings like that. So they scanned them and they were able to put it into a computer and tell the computer to analyze the shape and produce what sound it would have made. <laughs> this is a Katie did from Jurassic China. This is Jurassic China. We're looking at a, a hundred and sixty-five million years ago with physical st structure, acoustic structure preserved. Noisemakers. Noisemakers. The toy. Like if you had a little Katie did toy, this is what it would be. How it would be built. So the researchers simulate this sound. This was in research by Junjie Gu et al. in two thousand twelve. Uh, the, art, the publication was The Wing Stridulation in a Jurassic Katydid Produced Low-Pitched Musical Notes to Attract Females in PNAS, and it is open access, which means you get to listen to it right now. That's the sound, or at least probably very close, to the sound that this animal made 165 million years ago. This is about as close as we can get to taking a tape recorder and going back. <laughs> this is awesome. Now, as they mentioned in the title, it is fairly low frequency, especially compared to our living katydids, which mm -hmm. could help it travel its sound through denser environments and uh, get through the underbrush as it made its calls. And so that's what it sounded like, at least from one animal in one area in China during the Jurassic. Yeah. One of the cool things about studies like that is that those animals are often also competing with other noises in their environment. Yeah. So one of the things I remember from that study is that they mentioned that you the, the frequency that this animal is is 
chirping at, especially if it's it's using a very specific frequency, could indicate that there were other noisy things in the environment using that airspace. Yes. So you 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 hone in on I'm going to be low frequency because that other species is making high frequency noises at night. So this way we can differentiate ourselves. This is how we have different radio channels when you tune into the radio in your car. So they're yes. all at different radio frequencies. Very fitting the name of this Katie Dig was Archibolus Musicus. Yeah. Oh, it's fantastic. Perfect name. Now, <laughs> cool aside, I mentioned a term in there that I did not define right away on purpose called stridulation. And it is one of my favorite terms. This is the term I should have brought up for our q and This is one of my favorite <laughs> terms because it's such a cool thing. Stridulation is when you make sound by rubbing body parts together. And it's common in insects, mouth parts, wings, legs, all sorts of stuff like that. But vertebrates can do it too. What? There are some vertebrates that do this. Some very cool ones, I will admit, are things like saw scale vipers, which mm-hmm. can rub their rough scales against each other and make this sawing just continuous noise instead of a rattle. But there are two that apply back to our dinosaurs, another way they might make noise. Now, we already mentioned that they can do hisses. They also might be able to do things like stomping or clacking their jaws, which are things a lot of animals do. That, you know, Alligators slap their jaws. It has nothing to do with their vocal cords. They just clack. So absolutely, they can make noises with their body in lots of ways, but there's two cool versions. Mannequins are a type of bird, the club wing mannequin specifically, the male has special feathers that, when rubbed together, make a tick-tick-ting, tick-tick-ting sound. And that's purely through their body. And so they can make that noise through their feathers. And the tenrex, the streaked tenrex, which is a very tiny little mammal that's, you know, looks, if you have to picture it, looks kind of like a vole you know, just running around. They have little quills on their back situated on a special uh, uh, piece of skin called the quill vibrator disc that can vibrate these quills that go next to each other. And the mother uses it to call the young over as they're moving through the underbrush. Oh, that's so cool. What other animals had feathers and quills? (gasps) Why? Dinosaurs did. So maybe they were using stridulation. Who knows? I I love that imagery so much. That's <laughs> well, so was it, cool. I think there was also a, a study recently that showed that peacocks, uh, I don't know if it's if it counts as stridulation because I don't remember what it was, but mm-hmm. they, they move their feathers. Oh, uh, right. Their tail feathers vibrate or, or move at a certain frequency yeah. as well. So yeah, there's all sorts of ways you can make noises with your body. Exactly what noises they were. There's lots of options, but exactly which one of these options dinosaurs were using or how many of them, that that we still need better fossils to be able to answer. And so that's that's kind of where we are, is we're just waiting for that right specimen to come along. It'll happen eventually. Just keep looking. Keep digging. So the very last thing I want to talk about, this one, I just have a couple of quick examples because there's not a ton of very hard evidence for some of these, but... It is one of the most poignant, I think, when it comes to fossil bioacoustics because there is the question to be asked, if we're learning about fossil animals and the noise they made, well, there are fossils of hominids. Yes. Could they talk? When did speech arise? Yes. Speech as we know it uh, in as humans, like we're doing right now. Like, as we 
speak. To give you an example, that example. <laughs> to give you an example, this. This. All right. End of example. <laughs> Back to the podcast. Now, the hominid that the most of the studies end up asking this question on is Neanderthals, mm-hmm. which makes sense. That That's one of those ones that Neanderthals uh, have had such a interesting history with our species of hominid that it, it, you you have to ask the question if we both were making tools and we you know interbred making art living at the same time closely related did they did they talk could they talk now early studies found that their vocal range their phonetic their phonetic range was about equal to a young child and this was based off the assessment of three different skulls, including an adult human, a human child, and a Neanderthal skull. Okay. Recent research disagree- disagrees with that. So more recent studies have found that they would have had a greater vocal range, possibly equal to us. Cool. This is based on ex- extracted DNA samples from two different Neanderthal bones. They preserved a version of the FOXP2 gene. You all know the FOXP2 gene. I don't need to explain. We can move on. No. Uh, Honestly, if you've read (laughs) about vocal evolution, you've heard of the FOXP2 gene. It's very famous, actually. This plays a crucial role in the development of the human voice. Yes. If it's broken, you can't talk. The Neanderthal then had at least the genetic foundation for speech. For our modern speech. So they genetically could be able to. And so we have the genetics. Structurally, the main example we have is that the hyoid, or Adam's apple is what we call it in us very commonly. The hyoid between humans and Neanderthals is almost indistinguishable. Good to know. The larynx. So the the, the voice box. This is what suspends the voice box. Now we don't know the structure of the voice box itself. The hyoid is the bone that it is connected to and suspended from and very important for the muscle attachment and movement of the larynx, our voice box. Micro CT scanning compared the two and found that they were extremely similar. And this is noteworthy because the bones in general are living organs. They grow and heal and they will tissue will be reabsorbed from them and reapplied. You know, your skeleton is only, I think it's only a few years old, you know, when you look at the actual bone in it, like it's replaced over time. So you don't have a, you know, for me, almost 30 year old skeleton, I have like a five year old skeleton that's been replaced. The highway does the same thing, but it responds to the stresses put on it. So similar shape should suggest similar usage. Very interesting. Yeah. So we've talked about booming closed mouth tyrannosaurs we've talked about nose hooting parasaurolophus (laughs) and its cousins we've talked about roaring saber tooths we've talked about echolocating dolphins we've talked about chirping katydigs and now potentially talking neanderthals how fascinating it's just sound is this entire dimension of earth history that is almost completely inaccessible to us and getting these little glimpses. And it's so important. It's like color. Yes. It's like the colors of the past. That's just so important to how animals interact with each other. That any little glimpses into it are 
utterly fascinating. And, and as, as our techniques and our knowledge of where to search for the best fossils continue to improve, we can only keep learning more. That's a lot of times, you know, because people ask that, that question very often, like, if you could have a time machine, what would you use it for? And one of the top of my list is if I could only be allowed to, like, have one thing, I want to go back and record audio. Yes. If I can do a video with audio, a, awesome. A, a, yeah, a video camera. Yeah. Just but, give me the sights and the sounds. But if I – those sounds would compl- – I mean, it just aesthetically, it would completely change the way we view that time because yeah. it would it would either be – I'm sure there would be some sounds that would be startlingly familiar mm-hmm. and others like that, that would, Like the Katie did. Yeah, and others that would be hauntingly unrecognizable. Yes. And I want to hear – both of them. I want to know, uh, going back to our last episode, I want to know what Mosasaurus sounds yeah. like. Yeah. Did they vocalize? Did they rumble? Did they... They're lizards. Lizards tend not to be super noisy. Yeah. Who knows? Would they hiss? Well, just, How horrifying Just think about, be? like, when you go out into the... If you ever go out into the... To, on, a, on a nature walk with someone who knows sounds, like a birder, and they'll be like, that's that bird, that's that bird, that's that bird. Like, how many distinct species could you note just from standing in the middle of a cretaceous plain mm-hmm. and listening and going that i hear 12 different species of animal right here let's go find them it's a pretty amazing thing and the fact that we're able to find out anything about it is all the more amazing because the earth is a pretty cool place it's pretty neat and with that i think we're gonna wrap this episode up If you want to hear more about sounds, let us know. We'll be happy to let us know. We'll be happy to make more sounds about sounds if you ask. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks again, everyone, for listening. As always, thanks to our patrons for their support and helping us do this podcast. As always, if you want to get in contact with us, you can send us feedback, send us suggestions, send us questions in all the typical ways on social media and so on and feel free to take a look on patreon if you want to hear some even some more bonus stuff and support us there check out the blog post that comes with each episode for link this one will have links to a lot of the websites this will have links galore i have a lot Tons of them lots of good stuff and we release episodes every fortnight as always as always and thanks to the requesters thanks to the people who requested this we heard you we responded we heard your communication we didn't actually we 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 read it no we we read your different kind of yeah yeah i guess yeah so i was i was about to say we heard your bioacoustics but we didn't no we didn't you're right this whole thing was irrelevant i heard one of them i heard one of them (laughs) scrap it that's well no it was a text message it was a text but she she mentioned it later on okay (laughs) so i mean like (laughs) Kind of. <laughs> Listeners, we hope you've enjoyed our noises for this episode. Check back and in. With that, in, in two enjoy weeks. the acoustics of the outro music and my lovely voice as telling we... you how to contact us. Lull you off as we wrap it up to a lovely fortnight. Not fortnight. Yeah, fortnight. To a lovely fortnight. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. 
The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.